Welcome to the Open Pantry Podcast for yet another episode. I hope you are safe and well wherever you are listening to this podcast from. This is a series that I have named Transition and I wanted to give back to the industry and really talk about strategy moving forward and how we can continue to operate our businesses safely, profitably and think about a new strategy and purpose as we move forward to build a better industry. So what I've done is built this 10-part series in which I talk to industry experts in Australia, New Zealand and the US on what they believe is the best strategy to focus on to survive. Continuous improvement is a shared responsibility, but action is an independent one. So I hope you really enjoy these episodes as we move forward in this special 10-part series and really get something out of it. So make sure you share this with people that you think are going to get some value out of it. I'd really love to know what you think. Take care. Welcome to the Open Pantry Podcast for yet another episode. It's fantastic to have you listening or watching wherever you are as we go through this 10-part series, special 10-part series called Transition, all about strategy. I have made sure that I've connected up with the best and brightest all around the world, talking about strategy and how we reopen and continue to trade profitably coming out of this COVID crisis. So it's really fantastic to join, to, to have on board two amazing female entrepreneurs all the way from America, a brand called Oyster Sunday, which is a corporate office for independent restaurants. And I'm going to let them explain it in a minute. Elizabeth Tilton, founder and CEO, and Jessica Abel, um, Abel, oh my God, I asked you before, Jessica, and then I get it wrong. Um, head of projects and client <laughs> experience. Um, ladies, thank you so much for joining me. How are you both? Good. Good morning from New Orleans and... <laughs> Good morning from Brooklyn. Thank you so much for having us. Uh, it's fantastic to have you both on. I know that we've, um, uh, we've been talking over the last month or so about your amazing business and your fantastic experience in the industry. Um, I've been very humbled um, to have a couple of conversations with both of you now. So I feel really lucky to have you on the podcast. Um, Elizabeth, maybe if I'll start with you, just how um, you both had amazing careers in the hospitality industry in America. Uh, Elizabeth, maybe if I start with you about how you started out in your career and how it came to be that Oyster Sunday was formed. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I'm born and raised in New Orleans and I was actually went to college in Virginia, was medical school bound and decided, um, started a catering company when I was in college at the time to make semester cash, cash for my wine habits. Um, and <laughs> obviously it was much deeper than that, it seems. Um, and I eventually decided to go, instead of going to medical school, go cook um, and move down to New Orleans cooked down here for a couple of years um, in pastry. So in a commissary kitchen, I was kind of like called Sucre, kind of like the lottery of the South. And then eventually went to um, full service at um, John Besh's restaurant in August. And then I staged up at La Bernadette and kind of knew that I needed to get up to New York um, after that stage and moved up and started working for the Momofuku group and um, started at front of house and was managing at Som Bar and then started managing the operations at Som and Booker and Dax when we were rolling out things like inventory structures and kind of realized that there's this whole underworld that makes all of the data and everything kind of really work in restaurants. And eventually joined the branding team in-house at Momofuku mm -hmm. and was really in charge of the international partnerships um, which included things like the World Bank and Patagonia and Sweetgreen and the Mad Symposium and um, and then also the marketing in New York. Um, so when we're rolling out delivery structures back in 2012 and 2013, and then eventually um, as well our market expansion to DC and analyzing the, the the current climate and really what the city had to offer and how we should kind of position ourselves walking into the city. Um, and then I um, got approached by a culinary design company called WMP and the two co-founders I knew back in college and I was catering actually we we knew each other because I was doing pastries and they were doing savory we would kind of pair up and do events in Charlottesville and Richmond Virginia and so on and they were expanding their team to include their branding department so I joined left Momofuku to join their team and was with them for four years and really, I mean, learned everything from we were vertically integrated so we did everything from designing of products 
that would be used in your kitchens of hard goods all the way through distribution. So managing supply chain and manufacturing and the design yeah. process and every, everything kind of the stepping stones of how that company was running uh, and really re- re- like learned a bunch in four years. It was pretty humbled. Um, and then also included e-commerce and wholesale distribution. So kind of seeing both sides of the equation. But when I was um, back in 2012 and I was at Momofuku, I wrote down the business plan for what is now Oyster Sunday and was really recognizing, um, which actually I should probably take a step back, that Oyster Sunday stands for operating system is how the name came to be. So it was always the DBA name or the LLC name, but not necessarily the forward facing and it kind of stuck. Um, And we, anyway, I was recognizing the fact that if you're, when you look at a corporate office and restaurant groups, the, the ability of having unbelievable expertise, economy of scale, um, pooled resources, tech pooled, just the understanding of like global data and customer behavior. You really can clean a lot and have a lot of efficiency in restaurants, but there was no reason why that same structure couldn't be plucked up and applied externally of a particular restaurant group. So we can be brand agnostic and chef agnostic and state agnostic to allow us to have a much bigger footprint. Um, and it's not necessarily the sexy part of restaurants and why people go into it. They, everyone goes into <laughs> different reasons, but I think the I'll let Jess introduce herself as, huh? The critical it's, part, I was going to say. Yeah, it's pretty important <laughs> to get the, those numbers right. But mm-hmm. I think Jess and I both understand the, the unbelievable value of why it matters so much. And um, so that's who we are. But I, I love, yeah, Jess, you can, you can take the floor. Great. Um, So I am originally from the Washington, D.C. area. I went to college in Boston and moved to New York right after. Um, I studied communications in college and art history, and I ended up working in the publishing industry for my first five years in New York at Simon & Schuster. Um, And food and like hospitality had always kind of been a part of my family growing up, my mom's side of the family is Italian. My mom mm. had gone to pastry school and had sort of a, um, her own pastry catering company. And so it had always kind of been in my blood. And when I was working in publishing, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next and kept getting pulled back to, but what about something in the culinary industry? So long story short, I ended up um, going to culinary school at the Institute of Culinary Education, ICE in New York, and I did their culinary arts and management program. And I really went into it thinking like my dream job was to go work in the test kitchen at Bon Appetit, like many people (laughs) probably at the time. Um, But as I started my program, what I quickly realized is like, I loved, I love cooking. I love being in the kitchen, but I kept getting pulled more toward this. Like in my management program, we had to build a business plan. And so the business development end of it really kept pulling me. And so I, um, long story short, while I was in school, I read Danny Meyer's book, setting the table. And I said like so many people, I have to go work for this company and, you know, learn all about, Danny's philosophy on enlightened hospitality. So I ended up doing my um, culinary externship in the kitchen at Mylino in the Great Mercy Park Hotel, which you know many people love. It's one of my mm, favorite restaurants. Amazing, yeah. So I spent um, a good chunk of time working AM Garmanjay for a few months, and then I moved over to the front of house, um, kind of on the host res host reservations team at the time. I really wanted to understand front of house operations, had back of house experience on my belt. Um, So I spent about a year combined in operations and then had the opportunity to work, kind of become the assistant to to the executive chef at the time, Nick Ander. Um, So I spent about three years working with Nick and supporting the back of house teams at Mileno and then um, Marta, which is uptown a little bit. And um, eventually ended up moving over to the corporate office on the business development team. And I had opened a restaurant called Martina with Nick um, in the East Village, which unfortunately has since closed, but that was really my first foray into understanding what it's like to open a restaurant and I project managed that opening. So both from a construction standpoint and then also from the the corporate office level. So that's what eventually brought me to the business development team. Um, And I was in this newly created role of project manager of new business operations. So I really set up kind of all of the systems and processes around how USHG opened restaurants, obviously with the support of many 
amazingly talented and experienced people. But um, in terms of like critical path workflow for the corporate office, so managing, you know, everything from HR to IT, marketing, finance, accounting, et cetera. Um, and then again, supporting the construction team. So I was there for about six years. Um, by the time I left, I had opened, I think, had project managed about seven openings, five of which had opened. So Martina, Tacosina in Williamsburg, um, Cedric's at the Shed, Daily Provisions, which is had already had one location and was growing. And mm -hmm. so it was a really interesting, like pivotal time of growth for the company. So to really be able to see and understand what it takes to, um, you know, open the doors of all these restaurants. And then I also worked on a few consulting projects, which projects, which was super interesting and um, anyway, had been kind of feeling like I was ready for a change and was introduced to Elizabeth and um, here we are. I'd be lost daughter. So here we are. <laughs> I wake up every morning, I'm like, she's still here. <laughs> what, I, what, I think, what I think is interesting about both your stories is the fact that you probably at the start of your career, didn't really think you'd probably end up in hospitality, but hospitality just seemed to engulf what you wanted to, what you eventually wanted to do. Um, and when I first met you guys a couple of months ago, what I was um, kind of fangying off was the fact that you've worked for two, two people who I would have loved to work with um, moving forward. It, it seems to be that you both really had a passion to want to work for two amazing hospitality leaders in David Chang and in, and in, and in Danny Meyer, went for it, were able to succeed in those roles. And, and because you were so um, obviously fantastic in those brands, got so many different opportunities. Um, please stop me if I'm wrong. And do you, do you think when you went for those roles with those two, those two companies, was it what you expected when you first came into it? Maybe Elizabeth, if I could sort of start with you, if that's okay. Yeah. I mean, oh man. Um, I mean, it's, I don't know what I, what I expected mm. to be honest. I think that every time I stepped into a new operations and a new restaurant, you, you imagined that so much of it would be consistent and you realized everything was different mm. systems, communication structures, everything how just how things were set up. And, and so I think when I got to Momofuku, it was just unbelievably eye-opening because, you know, it was like 20 days. I mean, I had never worked front of house in my life yeah. and now yeah. I'm a manager at one of the, one of their, with the exception of Noodle Bar, busiest restaurants that's, you know, Michelin ranked and I'm sorry, 50 best ranked and all these things. And all of a sudden yes. you're like, well, here we go. Like, mm. and, and I think it was more of, I, I was so unbelievably grateful because it took, and I, I think it kind of goes back to Danny Meyer too, about the 51% of like how you look at, how you look at potential team members, but they looked at me and said, she might be able to do this. Let's try. And not mm. because I had this experience, not because I had previously run another restaurant or had the front of house. It was more of, I sat there and said, I don't know yet, but I'm going to find out the answer when I need mm. to. And, and I think that that it takes a certain type of operation to be able to, to, you know, adapt and to, to bring people in like that. And I used to always joke that, they probably let me in because they're desperate. <laughs> like, they're like, we just need a body, you know? Like, and, I, and then I think as I've gotten, you know, as I've <laughs> matured, um, I think what I've realized is that it, it probably was something different and yeah, it takes absolutely. a certain type of mindset. And, and I'm, I feel, and we were going through this, this unbelievable growth spurt from 2012 to 2015. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. We were building infrastructure. We were taking, again, I blew back to inventory management. We didn't like, onboarding all the systems, trying to create consistency, creating protocols, expansion, you know, Lucky Peach was around, the culinary yeah. lab was around, you know, just unbelievable talent. And I just think that it was, I felt like we we're in this kind of like golden, like this really unique moment in that time there. That was, um, it was very difficult. I mean, there's a lot of responsibility and a lot of work and really fast, but yeah. I felt, I felt like you just kind of, you figure it out. You know, and I, and I, I just, I feel, I feel so fortunate to have had the opportunity, mm. I have to say. What about you, Jess? I think that's such a great question. I think for me, the, the biggest thing going into um, working in the kitchen at Mylino, you know, I had gone to culinary school, but I had never, and I had worked as 
a host in a restaurant in college, kind of in the summers and, um, but going into, and I'm coming at this from a little bit of a different perspective than Elizabeth, going into working in a kitchen in a hotel that serves three meals a day, mm. I was just, I had no idea how hard it was to work in a restaurant. I mean, people talk about it, but it kicked my ass. I mean, yeah. <laughs> part of my French, but I think I just really, all of a sudden understood, oh my God, this is incredibly challenging work. You're working, you know, 12, 15 plus hours a day. It's, it's a grind for sure. But every, I mean, I think when I was there and I, you, you work in hospitality or you work in kitchens because that's your passion. I mean, for the most part, I know some, some people don't necessarily have as much of a choice, but I, so it, that was incredibly eye-opening for me just how hard it is to work in kitchens. And I think that I, um, you know, I tell people now who want to have a conversation about career growth or, you know, I'm interested in working in business development or I want to work in, in restaurants, but not necessarily in operations. And what I always say is to be able to bring, I don't know, without my operations experience, especially in back of house, I would never be able to bring to the table what I bring to the table. I think you have to have an understanding from personal experience of what it's like to work in a restaurant to be able to then guide restaurants in terms of how they operate, which is exactly you know what we're trying to do here. So that was just incredibly, I'm so grateful for that time, even though at the time every day I was like, oh my God, this is just, this is really hard. This is one of the hardest jobs I've ever had. Yeah. Um, but I think it humbled me and, and I'm so grateful for it. And then I think in terms of, you know, overall expectations going into working for USHG, I, I really wanted to work there because again, I had read Danny's book and he talked about all these company values and I really felt when I got there, like there, you know, it was like, are they going to, you know, walk the talk or talk the walk or whatever that expression is. And I really felt working at Myelino, especially transitioning, I mean, back of house and front of house, they're different. Um, but working front of house and working on the host reservations team, which to me was like, this is the, this is front center, how you learn hospitality because it's your first interaction with guests in a lot of ways. And I really felt like, okay, this is kind of true to, everything that I've read and learned about Danny's philosophy on hospitality at USHG. And I think we had a great front house team at the time. Um, and then I think as I grew in my role there and had more insight into the rest of the company, I think what I recognize similarly, but differently to Elizabeth is like, wow, there is a whole corporate office. I mean, at the time, there were probably like 70 people in the corporate office supporting mm. all of these restaurants. And we, I don't have my timeline exactly right, but again, it was a huge time of growth for the company. So just to see the support that was offered at the corporate office level, and then kind of eventually identifying we're growing as a company, we need to create more systems and processes around how we open restaurants and let's really think through kind of like consistencies across the restaurants in terms of training and um so i think you know where the company was pre-covid and hopefully post-covid is pretty different not not super different but somewhat different just in terms of um thinking about things like more holistically as a company yeah. um in terms of it versus individual businesses, if that makes sense. Yeah, hundred percent. I think in any like the you know the two major businesses and um, you've been involved in it's 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 kind of it's kind of challenging. And I've worked in you know chain restaurants and and other brands before. And you have to think of you have to think of individual stores or units or venues or whatever you want to call them singly and make sure you don't think about them too much as a brand collective. But you're always thinking about the brand. And what the brand ideals are and how you need to move forward as a brand in order to you know to make every location a winner as you as you possibly can so it's you know i think it's a massive challenge massive challenge yeah and i definitely agree with you jess about the back of house that was so like coming and i'll just chime in there one real quick thing because i didn't mm -hmm. even bring about that i remember going from college where every six months you're changing topics you know like it's yeah. semesters yeah. you're changing things up and i remember going to my first kitchen and and it like it like that kind of like four to six month mark. I was like, so now what? 
Like, like, yeah. are we moving stations or are we like promoting? Like, you know, and my chef was like, <laughs> I was like, uh, I don't think you understand how this whole thing works. Like, <laughs> like, I tell you when you're ready. And I was like, nah, I think I'm ready. And he was like, no, you're not. <laughs> and I think that's what shipped me out to the Bernadette to be like, let's, let's get humbled. And I like sat there in silence for two weeks and nothing to contribute. So yeah, I think we, I think we all learn in our own little ways, but definitely that resonates just in terms of being unbelievably kind of shell shocked when it came to, came to going back of house and being like, Oh, this is, I have to do this every day, this many hours. Cool. And the same exact thing every day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, One one other thing that I just wanted to jump into in terms of expectations was, Mm -hmm. One thing that I thought was so cool and continues to this day is that Danny will walk into a restaurant and like he cares so much about the little details Mm. and he continues to to this day. So, you know, he'll pull aside a manager or server to have a conversation about X, Y, Z. And, you know, he's thinking about how the cup is placed, coffee cup is placed on the left side of the guest or the right side of the guest. And I think that there's, that, those are just a few examples, but he really does care so much, you know, even though USHG has all these restaurants now, he's still, um, I think, very much in tune with like day-to-day operations and cares so much about those details. And I wasn't sure, you know, how involved he would be or would he be around in the restaurants? I mean, he was going to the restaurants every day. And so I just thought that was um, neat from a CEO who obviously has, you know, is in this really tremendously high position in the company and his company so yeah it's it's quite it's quite abnormal the best founders in hospitality are like that like they can do that but don't have a persona of an ego that puts people off like they'll just have that respect straight away and it's not you know it's not because danny's written a book it's because obviously he just is consistent with how he how he deals with his people so um is sort of what i think from not knowing him so um (laughs) I was going to say, just you both talked about humbleness and probably both having to, you know, just get over this little bump of like, you know, the next stage in your career or just slowing down. Like, how did you guys both do that and just go, okay, well, I can't move as fast as maybe I thought I was going to. And I have to just stay back here and just continue on and be consistent because I think that's why, that's one of the reasons why we have so many people who sort of, come into the industry and then come out of the industry um, really quickly, especially things like chef apprenticeships and all that kind of, all that kind of thing. Like how did you guys both, you know, just stay the course and believe that you were doing the right things and trusting the people above you? Um, I think part of it is just the, the, the pure, I mean, for me, for me, it was more of like, well, of course I'm not going to give up. Like mm. I have to keep moving forward. I mean, that's just kind of the way I'm wired. Mm-hmm. But I remember when I was, um, when I kind of was leaving medical school and like leaving that path to go to a culinary, I remember that when I was trying to, I, I, mean, I agonized over it for months, mm. agonized whether or not to do it. And, and I remember writing down this phrase, it was, what would you do if you knew you could not fail? Right. And it was this understanding of like, there's kind of a, a responsibility in that. Like you're conscious of the fact that you won't fail. So what do you do with that power? Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it's like, just move forward. What's the worst that could happen mm-hmm. right now? Mm-hmm. You know, the worst that could happen is I get fired and I have to, I'm living in New York on a very yeah. small budget and mm-hmm. I have to figure it out. But I always knew I could cook. I always knew that if I, if I, anything were to come back, I could go back and do something that I could rely on. Um, and, and I just felt like when it came down to it, I couldn't imagine being in any other industry. You know, I, I even, when I kind of like shut the door to medicine, I knew that like culinary was it. And so for me, giving up wasn't an option. Could I transition hundred percent if it wasn't the right culture, but it, it was more of, I'm just, this is, this is it. I mean, how could mm-hmm. I, I have to, I have to just, I did, wasn't even like an out of sight, out of mind, I guess in yeah. some ways of like giving up in that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. What about you, Jessica? I think for me, it was um, I definitely what you just said resonated. I think, you know, deciding to quit my job in the publishing industry and going to culinary school was a huge decision, obviously a huge financial decision. And so when I started cooking in the kitchen and realized that, you know, at the time, um, USHG also was very much a like, proponent of promoting from within. So you really work your way up. I'm similarly to have things where I'm and 
there were certainly times where I felt like, oh my gosh, I just want to get out of working AM Garmanger every day and I want to be, you know, ha have more of an impact on the day-to-day -day operations of a restaurant and a bigger role. But I also looked around and recognized like you need to put your head down and work hard and learn and be um, reliable and responsible. And I think kind of, you know, garnering the respect of the people around you and, and then I eventually, you know, just tried to build relationships with people and raise my hand and say, you know, I want to grow. I want to grow with this company. Um, and I think just being patient and like showing, showed my work ethic and eventually um, that got noticed. And um, but I, but I, I, you know, had made such a life altering decision in a lot of ways that I felt like there's no option. I'm. I'm going to continue working as hard as I can and hopefully that will pay off. And I think there were certainly times where my dad was like, okay, so what's your plan? You know, you've been working, you know, you've been working in the restaurant for like six months and you need to like have a 401k, let's go. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, uh... I, but you know, I just felt like I got this, like, trust me, I feel deeply passionate about this. I want to grow with this company. And, um, and so I just stuck with it. And I think, you know, hard work and also probably like the right people kind of took a, I got to know the right people in the company and took a, I don't know, took a liking is the word, but, um, you know, we're able to see the, the opportunity and believed in me. And so that enabled me to grow over the course of six years. I think it's really super interesting. The fact that, um, I, I watched a really old interview from Jerry Seinfeld, uh, a couple of weeks ago in which he was talking about how he thinks that he wouldn't have been a good comedian if he was writing his comedy in LA as opposed to being in New York because there's friction in New York. It's just so hard at times and you need to push through and you need to make it work because you really don't have a plan B. It sort of sounds with both of your stories that you kind of didn't really have a plan B and you kind of had people who were, you know, thinking that you might not, might not push through, but you just, went for it and made a great success of it and is obviously why you know you're doing the great work you're doing now like do you think do you think there's some truth to that <laughs> I, uh, I think new yorkers have grit yeah I mean, like that's what definitely. i would say <laughs> yeah. and i always say like both and i i i, I definitely try think that resonates i mean i think that there's a certain amount of like i went to i moved to new york to get my phd in life like yeah. I knew that. I knew that if I moved there, the, 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 how quickly it'd be accelerated going from where I was to where I could be was, I mean, unmarked. Now, San Francisco can't do that. In my, this is my opinion. Sorry for yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Or yeah. Chicago, but I just, I just don't feel that way. Um, and, and I just knew that was like the, the, the only, the only option. And, um, and yeah, and I just felt like it's, when it came to, yeah, that's, I guess all I have to say to that. But I, I definitely think that New York has a, a certain amount of like grit to it. And just, and I always say that there's kind of similar to New Orleans. It's, it's kind of unapologetic about who it is. Mm -hmm. It's kind of mm -hmm. like, I just know like, you're welcome. You like me, you don't get in or get out. But I feel like, you know, in the first six months, if you're going to make it. Yeah, um, true, true. You know, yeah. like, you're either going to stick it out or you're going to get out. So I, I really do believe that. Yeah, cool. Let's, um, let's talk about strategy because um, it's obviously incredibly important. Uh, moving forward for uh, for restaurant owners, cafe owners, bar owners to survive post COVID, um, you're working with some um, great independent brands uh, at the moment with with Oyster, Oyster Sunday. What are some of the strategies that you guys have put in place for your clients um, in the past sort of two or three months to make sure they're going to be successful? Yeah. I'll hop in here real quick. I mean, I, I think the one thing that we did that. Um, I think, right, well, when I was in, I guess it was in early March, I, I was actually visiting Jess for meetings in New York, and it was like the March 11th, and the WHO mm -hmm. announced the pandemic, and I remember sitting with her and like drinking coffee in the morning in a hotel lobby, and I was like, closed my computer, and it's like, it's time to go now. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, like, to go to the airport right now and go back to New Orleans. <laughs> I'll see yeah, you next right. Yeah. But by that Friday, we, you know, we were talking about what's going to look like, and by <clears throat> that weekend, we started building resources, and we announced on that Monday that we were going to offer completely free consultations to any operator in the United States. And I would say that that was an, a really kind of like the, a very pointed choice that we made as a company because we knew that um, opening that up and like 
you know, it's the knowledge, I always say like knowledge only goods those you share it with. Um, and mm -hmm. we were still learning and we, we, no one knew how to navigate this, but we knew that more minds at the table will allow everyone to. And mm -hmm. so we decided to do that. And I would say that that kind of that, that decision really pushed through where we are now, you know, in the last couple months um, since March. And I think that we, a lot of those comments, we talked to, I mean, I would say between 85 and 90 operators to date between like wow. different bricks and mortars and just, mm -hmm. And so we've, we've gleaned a lot. We've learned a lot. We've also made resources in some of the questions we've been asked and um, that we didn't know answers to. But I would say that now as we transition to the, the other side of this, you know, we're able to really identify some key elements that we can really help with some, with some operators that are looking for assistance. May it be on the kind of the more internal facing operations and really setting that up for success and tech and comms communications, mm -hmm. or it's thinking about openings and thinking about, you know, how are things pivoting and how are things changing and how are we going to like address and be part of that kind of transition for these companies. But mm. um, I'm not sure they answered your question directly, but I, I just, I kind of wanted to bring that up because I feel like that was such an important decision that we made as a company that I think changed this changed our, our we're now in a parallel universe. We're yeah. moving here kind of got like jolted and now it looks kind of similar, but like the flowers are different colors and the sky's like <laughs> yellow and like, you know, it's kind of like, it looks, I feel like we're in a different world now. Um, but <laughs> maybe, maybe a bad analogy. Uh, but I don't know, Jess, what do you have any, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, no, I would say <laughs> you nailed it. That's, ex I mean, that's what we've been doing the past few months. I guess the one thing to add is, to speak to um, the resources that we built, we built this reopening critical path, um, which speaks to everything that an operator needs to do in order or think about in order to reopen their doors. And so when we put that out, I think in early or mid April, yeah, I want to say, um, that also really, I think resonated with a lot of people, helped a lot of operators and um, facilitated a lot of people continuing to reach out to us. And um, I think that was a pretty important moment when we said, okay, we're gonna build this and we're gonna publish it and share it far and wide and you know, however we can help and whomever we can help. Um, so that felt really good. I think it, you know, everything that we put out all all intended to just offer support and resources and advice and to Elizabeth's point if we didn't know the answer to a question we found it out and I think especially in the beginning when we were kind of when restaurants were navigating you know from an HR perspective what are they doing with their teams um, and then navigating the the loans like the PPP loans and yeah. things like that and I mean we were really learning on the fly but we just said we're gonna spend as much time as we can learning about this so that we can help them navigate when they're making all these decisions that could be in some ways like life or death decisions for their restaurants not to be dramatic but I mean I think that that's how it's been for a lot of operators so yeah we're really lucky to have a network of i mean there's a lot of uh, i know colleagues that jess had worked with from like you know angie from hr and and just thinking about people that really kind of stepped up and said hey we also when we, we, we announced we're gonna do a free consultation people said like we have served like lawyers and talking about rent abatement and being like we're free we're doing everything wow. pro bono all us and so we understood we had this whole network not just our own knowledge we had this unbelievable collection of brains at the table that were able to really address questions if we couldn't find answers. So I just wanted to kind of say that as well. And, you know, and as we're kind of turned the corner about strategies moving forward, I mean, we're, we're really talking to operators about how to, how to, this is an opportunity to completely restructure, Yeah. you know, and to really think about compensation models. What does it mean to care for your, for your team? What does it mean to provide benefits and healthcare? And what can that look like going forward? Because we're, as things have paused for reflection, I think the time is now to grab the bull by the horns and to, while it's calmer and to figure out what the next path forward is. So we've been doing a lot, really thinking a lot about that next process. Has it, has it been a challenge for you guys to manage, um, you know, uh, um, uh, emotional owners in an emotional industry um, at such a hard time when things are changing on an hourly basis? Um, you're in different states, you know, I, when I talked to you guys this morning, um, this morning, my time um, outside of this podcast, and I was talking about how the lockdown in Victoria has, has is totally different to the rest of the, the rest of Australia and how that's just 
you know, changing day by day. And we've got an industry which is, which is thinking they're going to be locked down for another five weeks. But if it gets any higher in numbers, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a longer drawn out process and people just don't know what, what's going to happen. Are you sort of facing some of the same things as sort of numbers of COVID go up and down? Absolutely. I mean, I think stateside, we're seeing huge spikes right now. And a lot of state, the thing about here, I'm sure you're saying, but states here are smaller and mm. there's 50 of them. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, but every state has the right to mandate their own response, their own decisions, because yes. federal here is not, is not, I would say, willing to do that mm -hmm. on behalf of the country. Mm -hmm. um, and so the hard part is that every day is a new day, that there's no, there's no, um, real clarity of where things are going. There's no clarity of what's required. Um, and as a result, operators have to make decisions with the information they're given without, without any sorts of understanding where roadmaps will lead. Yeah. So really what we do, and I, I think it harks back on the critical path, is we sit there and say, okay, then what are the fundamentals of a restaurant that we can control? Let's go back yeah. to fixed costs, P&Ls, labor, logistics, SOPs, to, because those are the things we can determine to then make informed decisions about cash on hand safety that can then project making decisions about what do you offer? How do you offer it? And who do you, who do you hire to make that possible? Mm. And I think that if we can go back to things that we do know and are, are fixed and hard, then we can at least make decisions that will be rooted in some sort of bedrock when the rest of the world's shifting. And I think that that's just one of the, and I think that's one way we have to, we always go back on it. It's like, go back to the numbers, go back to the, the, the like concrete data and make informed decisions. Has that, have you had some pushback at times from people about that? Because it is, you know, they've, they've got their lives wrap up in these kind of things. And they've, it's, it's probably for, for a lot of, you know, people who are actually uh, experienced hospitality people, and owners, it's probably been the one time outside of a couple of crises that's happened the last 20 or 30 years in, in both our countries that they've been able to sit down and actually had to look at their business and actually had to you know, path, um, plan a path forward um, where the industry is actually doing the same thing at the same time. Like I can't think of another time this has sort of happened, does it? Has it been a challenge to try and just corral those people and say, okay, these are the nuts and bolts here. This is the black and white. We need to move forward. I'm here. I'm next to you. I'm willing. I'm helping you. This is what we're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, it must yeah. be a bloody big challenge. I would say there's like previously there was like Hurricane Katrina and 9 11. Mm. I would say in the two cities in which we've hunkered our lives, yes. that have really, you know, but this is different because it's on a world scale. Right. So it's not yeah. like it's not in your local community where you can find resources externally and like supply chains, everything's disrupted. But I would have to say that, and I agree with you that this is an unbelievably emotional, um, not only time, but an industry. People are very, I mean, the, people like in New York are literally, they're, they're literally liable for their rent if it defaults. Yeah. They are personally liable. Yeah. I mean, that's terrifying. That is mm. everything wrapped up into that. Mm -hmm. And that is, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a month of wrapped upness. Yeah. Um, and I think that what, the kind of we come at it and, the, and I'll speak for myself and I'll let, you know, Jess chime in too, is that, you know, I, I, you know, we definitely come at it as thinking about it being like, we, we aren't, an, we're emotional to you because we're empathetic human beings mm. and we've both been in the industry for a long time and we, we don't know what this feels like, yeah. but let us be a different type of ear on the ground and, and like kind of vantage point that we're able to remove ourselves from your daily operations to come back and say, objectively, this is what we recommend. Yeah. You know, like it kind of, we, I think we're able to create that buffer to make decisions or to help to inform decisions that can actually change the course of a company versus feeling versus being wrapped up emotionally into it. Cause I think that when you're in it and you're so entrenched and you're thinking about it every day, mm -hmm. the 30,000 foot view, it's just impossible. I mean, like, how do you even think about that yeah, when you you're, when you're mm -hmm. offering it that way? Mm -hmm. um, and so I just, yeah, I would think that's an important part. Uh, yeah, I would agree with that completely. Um, and Sean, to your question about has there been any pushback or has it been hard to get operators on board in terms of thinking differently in our experience? And I think that everyone that we've talked to has just been so, um, everyone's just been trying to figure it out. And I think, I don't think that desperate is necessarily the right word, but really just wanting to understand how do they move forward? How do they navigate this? And I, so I think there really was just such an appreciation on their end for 
our, um, you know, everyone that we've talked to and kind of the advice that we've provided. I think Elizabeth and I are very action oriented. So again, to your point about being able to look objectively, remove ourselves kind of from the emotional aspect of it in terms of being tied to one specific operation, but say, you know, okay, here are the things that we can recommend in terms of, um, you know, thinking about alternative revenue sources or your team or, you know, any number of issues that uh, restaurants are dealing with. So I don't think there's been any pushback. I think it's been how do we navigate this and ensure that we're open and operating, you know, on the other side of this, whatever that looks like. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think there's just been a lot of, I don't know, there's also just more generally in the industry been so much camaraderie. I think people have really come together and, sure. you know, there are organizations like, um, Roar or the IRC and seeing all these kind of major and some smaller restaurateurs come together across, you know, I'm speaking to New York specifically, but mm. um, come together to figure out kind of how do we create solutions to these problems, impact legislation that's being passed. And I think that has been incredibly inspiring and um, everyone just, you know, is trying to to figure out how we come out on the other side of this or how the hospitality industry comes out on the other side yeah. of this. And the independent yeah. restaurant, yeah, the IRC too, specifically here in the States, I think stands out. I mean, this it stands for the Independent Restaurant Coalition here yeah. in the United States. And, mm -hmm. and I, just, I just think that, I mean, for that to have come together in a week, and now have lobbyists on the Hill. And it's I pretty mean, amazing that restaurant, pretty with the amazing. Restaurant Act. I mean, it's, there's obviously been a lot of lobbying, a lot of, um, a lot of want to get that through. Sorry to cut you off, Elizabeth, but no. What do you do? You guys, do you guys think that's going to be through? I mean, that's going to that's going to that's going to um, be a massive change and and really save a lot of venues from what from what little I sort of know from reading the last week or so um, about the Restaurant Act. Do you think you know is that going to be the thing that saves American hospitality to some degree? I think. Um... I'm a, I'm a optimist. I'm a realist. And, um, I, I would say that my, the optimist to me says like, I hope we do figure out in the future. American politics is based off lobbying and mm. perpetual decades worth of, of just getting at it every day yeah. and just having someone's ear on um, when yeah. it comes in that. And it's, and, and I think that we are really lucky to have some people's ear right now and Congress and, and representatives and, um, but I, I do fear that we're a little too late. We should have been here 10 mm. years ago and I think we've mm -hmm. had a bigger voice, but do I think that, and do I think that this can't provide change for the future, even if it's not the restaurant act? Um, I think it can. And I think I'm very optimistic we'll get there, but I think for the sake of what we're asking right now, I think a lot of decisions on the cares act and a lot of, a lot of bailouts that have happened for certain industries. I, I shouldn't say bailout cause kind of more associated with 2008, but yeah, yeah. I would say, um, a lot of the money that has been allocated to certain industries, historic industries like airlines and so on right now, is because they've had their ear for decades. And I, and I just, um, so I, I hope that we, I don't know if the restaurant act specifically will come through, but I do hope we find some other solution. Mm. I'm optimistic that we keep speaking and saying <laughs> things again, but yeah. I'm just, I, I just like to temper expectations with, you know, what probably will happen. Yeah. It's, um, it, I don't know if you want to chime in there, Jessica, but like it's uh, from my from my sort of understanding here in Australia, like I'm 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 working with um, with the Melbourne City Council to give some advisory support to to figure out what the state government here should do in order for support. They announced about five hundred million dollars worth of um, worth of support for the state um, last week, which is really good. Um, we need to support restaurants here because obviously we're in lockdown and people are bleeding bleeding cash. But it's quite interesting how politicians are now just wanting really simple information because there's just an oversupply of what they need to do generally for every single industry. And they'll just go, if we can afford it, we'll do it, you know, and it's, and it's now people like yourselves and, you know, industry lobbies in, in the U S who have got so much good power. It's, it's a, it's a, um, it's an exciting thing to see, and it's it's if it's the one thing to come out of the um, come out of this crisis is the the coalition of the industry actually standing as one and and thinking about the better good of the whole industry rather than just restaurant by restaurant. So that's a good thing. Yeah. Mm. Not being a band of pirates, we're now actually like yep. a cohort of them, like a fleet. 
Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I'm with you. And I, I hope, I do hope that something comes of that. And I think that the IRC, I'm, I've been in awe of what they've, what they've been able mm. to accomplish to date. I mean, to have FaceTime with the president, you know, yeah. in the States, like, regardless if you want that or not, yes. your, own, your own discretion, yeah, exactly. uh, yes. but to have, have a voice at the table and literally at the table. I mean, that's something I couldn't fathom like mm. Will Goddard and Sean Finney being at that table yeah. weeks ago. I mean, that's, it's just pretty remarkable. Yeah. Um, what's been the biggest learning that you guys have seen sort of come out of the industry during this time? Maybe Jessica, if you want to talk to this one first, um, it, as we've said, the whole podcast, it's been obviously an extremely challenging time. What are some of the biggest learnings that you've seen either for yourself or for your clients sort of the last three or four months? Yeah, I think, and this kind of speaks to what we were chatting about last night, our time Mm. This morning, your time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I think is just kind of the need to sit back and reevaluate the infrastructure that supports the hospitality industry and you know independent restaurants. Um, I think you know we've been talking so much about labor and compensation models, and um, I think really the biggest takeaway that I have is, is let's whoever wrote the rule that just because things have been the way they have been for so long, doesn't mean that they can't change. And I think now is really the opportunity to sit back and say, what, what do restaurants need in order to, to be sustainable, viable businesses on the other side of this? So again, compensation models, how are they taking care of their teams? How are they thinking about benefits? That's something that Elizabeth is so passionate about and we've talked so much about, um, you know, talking about service included, hospitality included, what do those models look like going forward so that restaurants can afford to provide healthcare for their employees. Um, and then I think, you know, from a tech perspective, what tech solutions do restaurants need in order to, you know, when the margins are slimmer than ever, how can yeah. they automate things like, you know, inventory and I know any number of things, which I'm sure Elizabeth will speak to more because she's deeply passionate about that. But um, yeah, I think, it, and, and then my other takeaway is just that there is so much more transparency on the consumer and the guest side about the slim margins that restaurants have and their ability or not or inability to offer healthcare and benefits and paid time off to their teams and so i think we really have you know this transparency and the opportunity to reset and say this is how things were done in the past this is how things are going to be done moving forward so that this can, can this can be a sustainable, viable industry. I mean, who doesn't love restaurants? Who doesn't love going out to eat? Who doesn't love that kind of feeling of like a warm hug when you walk into a restaurant and a bartender knows your name or you have an incredible meal or, you know, any number of wonderful things that you feel when you're going out to eat. And um, I think we have to figure out how to move forward and that's something that, that that's like part of what this oyster sunday business model was built on is is you know creating sustainable infrastructure for restaurants so um we're we're both so passionate about that and i strongly believe as an optimist that that we are going to hopefully have an impact and and make this a better industry moving forward yeah totally agree what about you elizabeth yeah, I, I mean, I think Jess, I, will, I, I double down on everything Jess said, for sure. <laughs> and, and I think that one thing I will add is, um, you know, I, I think that we, we talk, also talk a lot about is like feeding your hyper-local community. And I think that that's one thing that right now we've been, particularly as we, I mean, what's, what's about to come down the pike is that we're going to, I think, I think many countries, particularly in the States, we're going to hit a recession. Mm. Food insecurity is going to increase. Mm buying power is going to decrease from consumers. And I think that a lot of restaurants, you know, have to think about not only how do you change your model to be, to better compensate, to better take care of your team and your patrons, but how do you feed others? Like can, can federal man, federal feeding programs be part of your business structure? Mm. Can like, should it be a responsibility? And, and I think that, and I think that also there's two sides where there's a, there's a responsibility to your community 
But also, I mean, in terms of when we talk about alternative revenue streams, I mean, this is consistency. You have contracts, you have certain cadence, you understand your buying power, you understand what, what it costs every meal. You, And I just think that there's a way in which people need to consider how that Venn diagram lays over each other and, and at what degree. And do, if, if, if part of more feeding your hyperlocal community is including your business model, in which I hope most people understand the responsibility of a of culinary to, to hopefully include that in some capacity. Yeah. It's a really good point. I didn't even think of that till, till now. So, um, two more questions before I let you both go. Um, if I can ask you, I know that obviously mental health has been the probably underlying thing that the industry talked about during this time. And I think, um, there's a lot more voice behind it. Um, I know it's been, um, definitely a challenge for me as things have completely swapped and changed. Um, over the last three or four months um, and I've been really fortunate to have um, a good circle of people in the industry but obviously people really close to me as well um, being able to have conversations with and, and keep me um, on a level playing field. Um, if I can ask you both like you're, you're dealing with as we said before emotional circumstances, emotional clients dealing with you know people who have houses on the line and stuff like that. That's a lot to, that's a lot to take in for anyone. Like how are you guys trying to, you know, separate yourself from that and trying to make sure that you can come every day with a positive sort of mindset moving forward for you and your clients and your business, but more importantly yourself, if I can ask you. Oh, geez. I'm like, I'm like, do I sleep? I don't know. If I, sleep. <laughs> like, I think I always love that. Um, the thank you for smoking. It's like, yeah, I sleep on Sundays. <laughs> um, it's, it's such a great question, John. I think making space for, for yourself. I feel, I mean, I'll say on a personal level, I feel so lucky to have Jess and I feel like mm. we, we are really kind of a good transparency and openness of being like, I'm just really freaking sad today. Yeah. I'm really sad. You know, and, and also just being, you know, and being like, are you feeling that way? Or, you know, and I think it's just kind of gut checking with each other pretty often of, and, you know, and, and I, I feel like I, I have to, I kind of, I think on a personal level, I kind of compartmentalize like some mm. of it. I mean, to be totally honest, I'm kind of like, I can't think about that right now because I just know that's going to run me down. And maybe that's just too much compartmentalizing and not, yeah. and not embracing certain things like being like, this shit sucks. <laughs> But I, but I do think that there has to be a certain amount of like personal and professional and the, and I'm willing to turn those switches on and off pretty quickly. Um, and I kind of make time for myself to reboot on weekends and to, to try to at night and in the mornings, listen to go on. I walk like for three hours a day, hour yeah, and a half nice. in the morning, hour and a half in the afternoon, just listening to podcasts and not talking mm -hmm. and just observing. And I think that to me is like that kind of system of clarity is pretty important. Yeah. But it's a great question. And I know it's a lot of people are suffering so much with mental health and there's a lot of great resources out there that, mm. um, though W R W C F here in the States, which is meant to focus on employees, put out a handbook, which we're happy to share yeah. resources about how for employees to help manage their health care and their mm -hmm. mental health. So, yeah. but there are a lot of great resources. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Jessica. I think that's such a great question. Um, yeah, I mean, this is, been, I've certainly been through some challenges in my life, but I was talking to my stepmom last night and she is 72 and she said, you know, this is the, the hardest thing I've ever been through in my 72 years wow. of life. And okay. um, I think that it's really challenging, of course. And I think for me personally, it's kind of the unknown has been the hardest part and the lack of control. Mm. I'm definitely like a control freak. I like to know what's coming. Um, and so that's been really difficult. But I think, you know, Elizabeth mentioned, I think we've been really transparent with each other and kind of checking in and saying, how are you feeling? And um, so that's been really nice to have an open dialogue. And in the moments where maybe one of us isn't having the best day, just to like take this time and space to kind of feel however we feel, go for a walk, listen to a podcast, et cetera. I think for me personally, I have such a great support system of friends and family and my husband um, exercising, going for walks, like doing a yoga class or whatever it may be has been huge. Whenever I'm stressed, I always, exercise is always the thing for me that I go to. Um, but, and then I think too, just 
having, I always, if I'm having a bad moment or a bad day, just always try to have the perspective of, I've got a roof over my head. I have food on the table for every meal. I am so lucky. And there are so many people who are um, not as lucky. And then thinking about how can I create opportunities to support those people, whether it's you know financially or otherwise, um, but really having perspective always helps. Um, and yeah, I think this shit is not easy. This is really fucking hard for so, so many people and it's touching everyone, you know, this like on a global scale. And yeah. um, if, if there's someone who's saying that this isn't challenging for them, then I'd like to understand <laughs> what they're doing. Wired. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, and then I think to Elizabeth's point too, you know, we've been fortunate to be incredibly busy over the last few months and now we're starting to um things are starting to get busier and i think it always helps to have something to focus on and um so the kind of day-to-day what we have to do at work has just and to know that that hopefully is having an impact on um you know our clients and and their ability to move forward and come out on the other side of this so i think that that just knowing that we can have that impact um yeah Let's, um, let's end on a positive note because I think it's really, really important. Um, what are you both looking forward to um, for the business on the other side of on the other side of COVID? Maybe Jessica, if I keep with you, um, if that's okay. What are you looking forward to? In terms of Oyster Sunday or yeah, just more general? Yeah. Yeah, in terms of the business. You know, I'm really excited about the clients that we're working with right now and the prospective clients that we're talking to. And I think that um, this idea for Oyster Sunday that Elizabeth had in 2012, I really deeply believe that um, we can have an impact in creating a different business model for restaurants. And I'm just, maybe this isn't a specific answer, but I'm really excited to see what what we can do together and um you know the impact that that we can have yeah totally what about you elizabeth man i feel like i feel like the some things that we wrote down about resources and all that stuff that we thought would be three years from now has happened Mm. and are much quicker (laughs) than, than i ever imagined and and i'm just I think that we're, we're going, we're going to go through a growth spurt real quick. And I think that I feel really lucky in, in the midst of COVID to have met such remarkable people, including yourself through this. I felt like, you know, I'm I'm an extrovert and I just love, I just love when the world gets smaller and meeting more people. And, and I feel like when we come on the other end of this, this, the, what, you know, as we've talked to people and as our kind of our community has grown as a company, I am so, so jazzed to be able to bring, more and more people into the fold and really work in collaboration and partnership with a lot of people we've met because i think that the more people and ears and eyes at the table the stronger this industry gets and i think that we we never want to be in an echo chamber and we never want to be in a vacuum and Mm -hmm. i think the more transparency and open honored conversations that we have the better off we're all going to be um and so i'm very i think that all the a lot of our business model got catalyzed and i think that our network got catalyzed in in a really meaningful way in a way in which I'm, I'm just, I'm really jazzed. I, yeah, I use the word jazz again, but I'm really excited about and to, to be able to bring it, bring it all together. That's awesome. What a good way to put it. Um, Elizabeth and Jessica, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. What is the best way that people can find out about Oyster Sunday? I know you also have a fantastic podcast, which I've listened to a couple of episodes. Oh, um, thank you. That's all right. Um, no, it's really, really good. So, um, yeah, what's the best way that people can connect with you and find out about the amazing work that you guys do? So you can find us online. Uh, our website is oystersunday.com. And you can find us on Instagram at handles at oystersunday. And then if you want to contact either of us, hello at oystersunday.com is the best way. And we'll, we'll be able to chat. And we're still taking free consultations and um, so if anyone has any questions about the business model, about where to go, we're, we're, we'll continue to honor that for the foreseeable future. So give us a call, give us, well, I guess an email, drop us an email <laughs> and, uh, you know, hope to hear from you, but Sean, thank you so much for having us. It's been 
always insightful conversation where we had a chance to chat with you, even if it's late your time and early hours. <laughs> I'm like still waking up, got my coffee. <laughs> Not a yeah, coffee to keep me awake, it's okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for having us. And I think, you know, every conversation that we've had we've, till this point, we've so enjoyed getting to know you over the course of the last month or two and um, always enjoy our conversation. So thank you so much for having us. Hey, likewise, um, I'm always um, happy to put um, people who are doing the right thing for the industry and, uh, and a special, especially for me at the moment, um, focusing on female leadership with inside the industry. Um, because as I spoke to one of my New Zealand counterparts um, the other week, he said, females just do it a lot better than what we do it. And <laughs> they just, you guys just think so much smarter and I uh, learn so much every time I talk to the both of you. So um, all that information about how to contact Oyster Sundays in the show notes, as always, Elizabeth Tilton and Jessica Abel, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Sean. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of the Open Pantry Podcast. I hope you really enjoyed it. As always, please look in the bio of this podcast and always send me a voicemail message. I'd love to know what you think of the podcast or just follow us on Instagram under Open Pantry Consulting. Until next time, stay well.